Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. This is Scott Adams, author of Loser Think, How Untrained Brains Are Ruining America. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both discover new ideas so we can better succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you are a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you time. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We work with manufacturers to help them grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide atop the organic results. And very special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Oribe. If you're overwhelmed by Google Analytics data and not sure how to turn it into actionable insights to improve your website conversions, you can get a free 10-day trial, no credit card required, by visiting oribe.io slash marketingbook. That's O-R-I-B-I dot I-O slash marketingbook. And use that link to get 30% off your first three months. And unlike Google Analytics, you'll get a helpful and friendly conversion expert available 24-7 to answer your questions and show you nifty tricks and hacks to optimize your conversions. I'll have more details in a bit. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Scott Adams to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Loser Think, How Untrained Brains Are Ruining America, published by Portfolio Penguin. Scott Adams is the creator of Dilbert, one of the most popular comic strips of all time. He has been a full-time cartoonist since 1995 after 16 years as a technology worker for companies like Crocker National Bank and Pacific Bell. His many bestsellers include The Dilbert Principle, Dogbert's Top Secret Management Handbook, and How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big and Win Bigly. He is the co-founder of WinHub, an online interface that enables anyone to quickly and easily find and connect with experts. And interesting fact, he is a trained hypnotist, and he is so good at it, I'm already under his spell. Scott, congratulations on Loser Think, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, again, I just uh, am such a fan of your Garfield cartoons. I'm kidding, of course. I know in the book you mentioned that some p- people who come after you, <laughs> they attack you, and they start attacking Garfield, and you're thinking, mm-hmm. how much do these people even know me? <laughs> they can't even get my cartoon right. Well, well, usually they're trying to mock me by saying that I'm the cartoonist who does uh, Garfield, except they don't know that in my industry, that would be like the greatest compliment you could ever give oh. anybody. Really? I'm better than I thought? Okay. <laughs> Well, I'm not trying to mock you. I try not to mock my guests here. But I, I should say there, on a personal basis, your, your Dilbert cartoons, and I'm probably correct. You've heard this in the past. But years ago, before I started my own firm, I was working at this place, and it was uh, right out of the movie office space. And your Dilbert cartoon on Sundays was the, on the front page of the cartoon section, top of the fold. And I had to go through a part of my life where I, I had to stop reading it because it just depressed me too much. It was too much like work. It wasn't <laughs> funny. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't you. But that was a signal to me that I had to go do something else. And so I left there and started my own company 
started making a lot less money, but boy, did my mental health improve. <laughs> and then I went back to reading Dilbert. So there you are. Well, and then your mental health probably went downhill again after that, but <laughs> no. that's another story. No, not at all. Not at all. So I want to do something that I've never done on an interview before, and that is read from the acknowledgments at the very end, just one small part. And then I want to quote from two other parts at the very beginning, and then we'll get into it. So you say, thank you to the social media trolls who made this book possible. If it had not been for your nonstop attempts to make me sad, I would not have had the material to write this book, nor would it have been this much fun. Thank you to all the people in my life who have pointed out the flaws in my thinking over the years. I didn't like it when it was happening, but I've learned to recognize it as a gift. I tried to pay it forward. And then at the very beginning of the book, you write, I wrote this book to get you acquainted with or remind you of the most productive thinking techniques borrowed from multiple domains. Collectively, they will help you avoid unproductive loser think. And then you mentioned learning how to think productively does not come naturally to any of us but it is easy to learn. You simply have to be exposed to the techniques and you'll likely remember them for the rest of your life. The techniques are simple to understand and easy to master. This book will set your brain filters to recognize loser think whenever you encounter it in others and in yourself. So, Scott, what is loser think? Is it about being dumb or uninformed? <laughs> now, loser think is not about the quality of the individual. So I'm not calling the people losers. And in fact, I say a few times in the book that I've made every mistake in the book and I don't consider myself a loser in general. Um, what it's about is using uh, unproductive methods of thinking. And that usually comes because you haven't been exposed to enough uh, varied fields. So for example, if you had no experience in economics or business, you'd have a very different look at a lot of topics, even in the headlines. Uh, if you've got only a, let's say an English uh, major background, you might have some holes in terms of creativity, maybe, maybe history, maybe psychology. So what I try to do is get the easy thinking styles from each of those uh, disciplines without getting into the details of, of those disciplines, just the, the thinking styles. Uh, just a, a simple example is if you'd never heard of the concept of a sunk cost, then you wouldn't know that money you've already spent should not help you make a decision about future spending because that's already gone. You sunk it. It's, it's gone. It shouldn't be part of your future decisions. But most people do. If they haven't been exposed to that way of thinking, they would just automatically say, well, I've already spent you know $1,000. I don't want that to be wasted. Right. Uh, and that's a bad way to think. Mm -hmm. Well, now, the next question is, I don't mean to appear rude, but Scott Adams, what makes you qualified to help people think more productively? Well, the best thing I have going for me is age, because if you expose yourself to enough stuff over enough time, you end up with a pretty good perspective. In my case, I have a degree in economics. I've got an MBA, so I've got most of the business world covered. I worked two corporate jobs, uh, first at a big bank and then at the phone company. And I was in a variety of jobs there from strategy to marketing to sales. You know, I, I got to see everything from interface testing to surveys. And since then, I've studied persuasion in all of its forms. I'm a, I'm a certified hypnotist as well. And I try to do uh, what I call building my talent stack, which is I'm continuously adding uh, at least a little bit of knowledge on a lot of different categories so that I can see through all the windows in the house. Whereas if you asked me when I was 22, you know, what's the interior of this house look like? I would walk up to the first window I could see in and say, uh, I'm looking in the house. It looks like a house that's a bathroom. It's a bathroom house. And it would mm. be, of course, because I, I could only see through one window. But mm. now I, I have a much better ability to walk around and look through all the windows. And that's what I try to teach people. Right. Well, let me ask you about mockery. I found it very interesting why you recommend or, or talk about using mockery rather than calling people stupid. What's talk about the power of mockery. Nobody likes to be embarrassed. Um, I've trained myself to feel less shame than the average person and it's something you can learn. But in general, 
People do not like to be shamed or embarrassed, especially if anybody's watching. So if somebody does or says something in front of other people and you have a chance to respond in front of other people and their idea is really, really bad, mockery is probably the most effective way to move them off it. I discovered this when I was doing the Dilbert comic uh, in the early days and I would hear from manager after manager would email me or talk to me, you know, pull me aside if they saw me. And they'd say some version of the same story. It always sounded like this. I was about to roll out this new management program, and then someone showed me your Dilbert comic mocking it. So I decided to put that on hold. <laughs> and, and the main lesson that I give people is that good ideas are impossible to mock. Mm-hmm. So if somebody says, hey, I've got something I want to do. Let's do a small trial. Won't cost much. Won't take long. We'll, we'll see if this is a good idea to do large. You can't mock that. That is purely just good, sensible uh, way to go, and there's no way to mock that. But if something's a bad idea, you can usually mock it pretty well. Yeah, and you mentioned that uh, even Elon Musk in his, uh, I guess, employee guidelines said something like, look, use your best judgment, but if you find yourself in a situation that could turn into a Dilbert cartoon, don't do that. Yeah, that was in the context of saying that if we have a word for something, that everybody understands the word, it gives that idea power in a way that if it doesn't have a single name to label that idea, it just becomes this um, formless concept that people don't do much with. So the, the fact that Dilbert exists and people are familiar with it allowed Elon Musk to say, don't do anything that could show up in a Dilbert comic. and Although that probably includes, you know, infinity in terms of the number of things you could do that would would meet that test, everybody kind of knows what that is. So you, you know it when you see it. So one of the reasons I invented the word loser think is that once people have read the book, it gives it a little more structure. They can say, ah, oh, that's another example of loser think. And it just gives form to a concept, and that's always a good thing to do. Yeah. Now – Let's talk to the person that might be thinking, well, now, wait a minute. Come on. I'm not, I don't have loser think. I I have a lot of common sense. Can you explain how common sense can dupe people into believing that they already know how to think effectively? Well, common sense is largely an illusion. Uh, In practice, people think that whatever they think is the right answer is common sense. So if two people disagree and they're looking at exactly the same facts, they will conclude, both of them, that their view is the common sense one and the other one is just some kind of crazy talk. So the the first thing you should know about common sense is that we all think we have it, but not many people do because good judgment is not common. That's why I wrote the book. Even the smartest people uh, are often smart in a silo. If you take, let's take politics as an example, a lot of the smartest people in the country are consuming only news from the left or only news from the right. And those people are not equipped to really have a good understanding of what's going on. But if you ask them, they'd say, yeah, I'm well-informed. I read the news every day. I use my common sense. But those tools are not nearly enough. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest threads of the book was this concept of mental prisons. Can you explain what 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 is meant by a mental prison? So a mental prison is something that keeps you, figuratively speaking, locked into your point of view or locked into an inability to act in the way that you'd want to. So one of the techniques I teach in the book came from a hypnosis uh, technique. Uh, Let's say that you know you need to do something. You need to get off the couch. You need to make a phone call. You need to, you know, plan something, look something up. But we've all had this, this experience where you know you have to. You know you want to, but you just can't make yourself do it. You're just tired or lazy or unmotivated, and you're just laying there. That's, that's so where I learned the, the word couch lock. I'd never heard of that term. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's sort of a stoner term, but you could use it for other purposes as well. <laughs> and, and so what I teach is a hypnotist trick. You're laying on the couch. Just imagine yourself. You're literally laying on the couch, and you just can't get up, but you know you need to. So if you can't imagine getting up, it's too big of an ask for your brain and your body at that moment. Reduce the thing you're asking until it's so small you're willing to do it. And I recommend wiggling your pinky finger. Just sit there and say, can I wiggle my pinky finger? 
And the answer is yes, you can always do that. And then after you wiggle your finger, say, can I move my hand? You can wiggle your hand, then your arm. And about the time that your whole arm is moving, you're, you're up off the couch because you've, you've started a pattern which is very familiar to you, which is if you do something, that leads you to do more something. If you're laying there sleeping, your inertia is to stay sleeping. So just that little bit of change that starts with the smallest thing you can do, just wiggle one finger and then expand it to your hand and your arm, uh, pretty much just puts you in a different mode and it will take you right off the couch in five seconds. Yeah, and the, I guess the other side of the coin is you say loser think involves imagining the entire task ahead and letting it just stun you into uh, inaction rather than just getting started. Right. If I, if I thought of, for example, what would it take to become a cartoonist? If I had known that that would have required working seven days a week and 12 hours a day minimum for 10 years to, to get things off the, you know, off the, uh, the bottom, if I'd known that, I'm not sure I would have done it because it would have seemed like such an enormous, daunting task. So instead what I do, and I do this for other things as well, I break it down into the smallest micro step that I know I can do. So in the case of being a cartoonist, I said to myself, you know, I don't really have proper pens and paper. So I went to the store and I brought some, bought some pens and paper, and that was it. That's all I did that day. And then another day I thought, I got a few minutes. Let's see how these pens and this paper work. So I would draw some cartoons, and that's it. That's all I would do is test the materials. And then I would just string together more micro steps. I would ask somebody for some advice. I would try something new. I would research something until those steps sort of built up to the point where I knew where to submit my comics. I knew how to make comics. I knew what kind of pens and paper to use. And um, it all started there just by putting together lots of tiny, tiny steps that individually I was willing to do. Yeah. So let's go back. You mentioned uh, people on maybe either side of the political divide are getting their information from from different places. And it was very interesting uh, for me when you talked about that the press has a business model now that rewards brain manipulation versus accuracy. And you call that political warming. Can, can you talk about what you mean when you say the business models of the press and social media are acting in concert to keep you in a mental prison. <laughs> you said like some sort of indentured servant working on a click farm. Right. So in the old days, the news was, at least we thought, something like objective. It was trying to focus on the facts. And in those days, they couldn't really easily measure people's response to the news. It was sort of an indirect, best guess kind of thing. Well, we think these stories are better than these stories. But as soon as we got to the point where we could measure with great, uh, great accuracy whether a headline worded a certain way or another way got more clicks and whether uh, a type of story got more clicks, even the placement on a web page, you know, the things that are put in the top left are more likely to be clicked than the bottom right. So once we compiled all of that knowledge about how to track things, uh, that was the end of the news. It was, it was sort of dead man walking at that point because it was always going to go in the direction of, of using whatever technology and science and manipulation uh, we could uh, come up with to get people to click more because that's what feeds the advertising model. So the ability to measure with precision what works and what doesn't work in terms of getting people excited and clicking, that didn't exist before. And as soon as we got that, that was the end of everything. Because once you're, uh, most of the news organizations are public companies, they report to stockholders, the CEO's bonus depends on profits. Uh, that pretty much guaranteed that you were going to go from something like a news organization to something more like a propaganda organization if you're looking at it in terms of their larger goals, but in terms of how it affects the audience is that the audience is being just stoked continuously. And the business model requires getting people's hair to catch on fire, even if there's no real story or substance at the bottom of it all. 
Yes, I like to call it the industrial outrage complex. I don't think I came up with that. I probably read that somewhere. But that's exactly what it is, just like the same way a casino gets people to stay there (laughs) with that addiction of of winning. You know, even the casinos don't have windows or clocks because they don't want you to sense the the passing of time. And I've learned a bit about this in the past, but boy, did, did your book sharpen it. Just where I work out at my gym, there's a bank of like six televisions. And you can go up and change it if, you know, if, if nobody minds. And there's not usually too many people there. And I've gotten to the point, even before I read your book, but now I'm, I almost shouldn't go to the gym because I go in there and all they have on when they turn them on is all these television uh, news shows. Like, and it's a lot of politics. And mm-hmm. I go up and I, I just, I'm becoming less tolerant. I go up and I change it to like the Weather Channel or ESPN or home and garden television, just because I don't even want to see these people and these chirons, because I know <laughs> much better now that they're trying to uh, light somebody's fuse, you know, whether whatever the political uh, persuasion is. Right. So a few of the tips that I give in the book to sort of defend against that business model of the press is, number one, wait 48 hours whenever you hear a story that you just can't believe. It's like, oh, my goodness, I cannot believe that that person did that thing. Wait 48 hours, and there's probably an 80% chance that you're going to hear that person didn't do that thing. It was just misreported, or it was out of context, or there's something you missed. Um, So always wait 48 hours. And if, if there's any kind of war involved, if anybody's shooting at anybody, you definitely have to wait 48 hours because that stuff is all fog of war for the first day or two. And sometimes it lasts a lot longer than that. We're going to take a break here so I can tell you about this sweet free 10-day offer from Aribi that does not require a credit card, will make you look smart. And frankly, if you don't take advantage of it, I might wonder if you're listening to the right podcast. Plus, there's an additional special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners. As marketers, we're drowning in website data. Have you ever looked at a Google Analytics report or tried to explain to someone? Knowing exactly what to do with Google Analytics data isn't easy. It was built for analytics experts with plenty of time, technical resources, and a pretty deep understanding of that platform, unlike most of us. Aribi's goal is to make web analytics easy, and the Aribi platform has proven to be a game changer for thousands of businesses. That's because Aribi translates your website data into actionable insights and helps you focus on what really matters and what requires your attention right now. We've been using Aribi here at Artillery, and I know this sounds crazy, but it reminds me of when I was in the Army and the first time I ever put on night vision goggles. Suddenly, I could see things I didn't see before. Like I said, it's kind of a game changer, or as I recall saying in both instances, whoa! And unlike Google Analytics, you get a helpful and friendly conversion expert available 24-7 to answer your questions and show you nifty tricks and hacks to optimize your conversions. You can even ask for Emily. She's a marketing book podcast listener just like you. But don't get her started on Nebraska football. Remember, this is a free 10-day trial that does not require a credit card. So even if you don't end up using a rebe past the trial, you'll get access to all the reports and insights to improve your website conversions. And you'll get 24-7 access to a conversion expert. But wait. There's more. Marketing Book Podcast listeners who sign up for Aribi will get 30% off their first three months. With savings like that, you might consider sending your host a bottle of single malt scotch. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and take advantage of this offer, go to oribi.io slash marketingbook. That's spelled O-R-I-B-I dot I-O slash Marketing book. There's also a link to it on this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now back to the show. So let's talk a little bit about uh, thinking like a psychologist. And in the book, for the listener's benefit, you've got thinking like a psychologist or thinking like a leader or a historian or an engineer and, and so on and so forth. Talk about the illusions that you see most commonly displayed on social media and the news uh, that, that people have? Well, the biggest mistake I probably see more than any other uh, is the mind-reading illusion. Mm-hmm. So it's the, idea, it's the idea that you can look at what people are doing, look at what they're saying, and you could take those and put them together and say, you know, if that were me, the way I'd be thinking internally might be this, or because I know this person is evil, 
I'm going to assume <laughs> bad intentions. Uh-huh. And and most of our news, if you actually look, if you put that filter on it and say, okay, let me just look at the headlines today. Just pick any news site, left or right. I'm going to look at the headlines and see how many times a key part of the story is somebody assuming incorrectly, almost always, what someone else is thinking or mm-hmm. what their motives are. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one you hear all the time is, the only reason President Trump does X, Y, or Z is because he's trying to make a profit. You know, he's going to make a profit out of this presidency. Now, maybe he thinks that, maybe, but you can't tell. And if you're making decisions based on guessing what strangers are thinking, you might get it right sometimes just by luck, but there's certainly nothing rational about that. We really don't know what other people are thinking. Uh, so that's one big one. The, the other big one is coincidence. Yes. If you see a bunch of coincidence and the folks in the news, the pundits especially, will line up as many coincidences as they can and say, look, it is clear that this person is a monster and here are the 10 things that they've done that absolutely prove that they are monsters. And you'll look at the list and you'll say, you know, there's not one thing on that list that's super powerful, strong, makes the case. It's only because there's a lot of them. So one of the techniques that I recommend is, uh, I call it the magic question. If somebody gives you a laundry list of what look like coincidences to you, but to them look like proof of a pattern, mm-hmm. uh, instead of arguing them all, I say, Look, in the interest of time, why don't you tell me your strongest point? And would you agree that if I can debunk your strongest point, meaning that all your other points are less good than the one I debunked, that you'll at least go back and rethink it? Because you can't really change people's minds in the moment. It hardly ever happens. But you can soften people's confidence in their opinion. And I find that uh, I've used this technique over and over uh, on social media especially. You can usually debunk their strongest point because none of them are strong. That's why they needed to put them on the list in the first place. If they had one really good strong point that would stand by itself – there wouldn't be a list. <laughs> so, so I mean, there might be just to you know, round out somebody's story about a situation, but people wouldn't be printing the list on social media. they just say, here's the thing. Here's this one thing. This person needs to go to jail because of this one thing. It's obvious. I'm done. You don't need to know anything else. So the list is a tell for uh, no good reasons, in, at least in the way it works in social, social media. So those are the big ones. And then the other illusion is that you don't need to talk about either the costs or the benefits of your plan. This is something you only see in political, social media context. In the business world, if you go into your boss and you say, here's my plan, it'll cost you know a million dollars and I want to do this. If your boss knows what they're doing, they'll say, okay, that's great. What's the second best plan? <laughs> right. Right, prove to me that this is better than the second best plan, and then you know maybe give me some you know worst case, best case scenario, so that I'm making an actual decision and I know what the real costs are and the real real benefits. But in the typically what you'll see in the political world is somebody will say, and we need health care for all. Okay, what's that going to cost? Well, blah 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 blah. Change the subject. So. So you're seeing people trying to drill down on stuff like healthcare costs and getting a lot of evasive answers because we all like to talk about the half of the equation that helps our side. Mm-hmm. So the people who don't want everybody to have healthcare that, that taxes pay for, uh, they'll say, you can't afford this, it's $30 trillion or whatever number they're using today. And then the other side will say, well, you can't have a country with not enough healthcare. Well, that, that's no kind of a country. So... Those kinds of opinions, which I call half opinions, mm-hmm. it's not a full opinion until you show me the alternatives, all the costs, all the benefits, and critically, what it looks like in the near term and what it looks like in the long term, because that's the other trick. People will leave out either the short term or they'll leave out the long term, depending on which one makes their case better. Well, since we're talking about psychology, before we move on from that, I did want to talk about one's ego. Can you explain what you mean when you say that if you're, you, if you think your ego is who you are, as opposed to a tool that you can dial up and down, you might be experiencing loser think. Yeah, your ego is probably your biggest enemy in life, 
because I, I said earlier that I'd learned through uh, lots of practice and technique how to be somewhat immune from criticism and from embarrassment. And your ego is the thing that keeps you from taking a risk that might embarrass you. It's the thing that uh, keeps you in your box. Oh, don't do that. You may be not good enough to do that. Maybe other people will say things. Maybe you'll get hurt. So those are, that's your ego talking to you. As soon as you can learn that that's a fake voice and that you can control your ego like a tool, you're in much better shape. And what I mean is there are situations in which it helps to crank up your ego. So, for example, before I do a public appearance, I will often remind myself that I'm good at it. Now, that doesn't have to be true, but it's helpful to say, I'm good at this. This will be fine. Nothing could go wrong. I can't be hurt. I'm good at this. I've done it a million times. So that's an example of cranking up your ego for effect because that will make you actually perform better because you feel confident. The uh, same with sports or other activities. If you have a little bit of confidence but not too much, it actually helps your performance. And then there are situations where you know you need to dial down your ego because other people are not comfortable with it. So there, I can't tell you how many situations I walk into where I'm literally an expert with decades of experience in whatever the question is, and I have to sort of keep it to myself because what I want to scream is, you know, there's not one person in this conversation who has any experience this except me. Why don't you all just stop talking and just let me tell you what's the right answer here? But I don't do that because that doesn't make for a good meeting. So instead, I end up saying things that are more socially acceptable, such as, you know, in my experience, I've seen this work pretty well, but, you know, I'd like to hear what you guys think. That does make for a good Dilbert uh, cartoon, though, that approach. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. So in talking to the creator of Dilbert, I am required by marketing podcast law to talk about engineers. <laughs> and you, you make fun of engineers a lot in, in, in your uh, comic. But I think that... What you said about engineers in your book was actually uh, rather flattering, and we could learn a lot from the way engineers uh, think. Now, I would like you to talk about what you mean when you say that non-engineers often find themselves in mental prisons because the solution to a problem has to be tightly coupled with the cause. Explain what you mean there. Yeah, so let's take the example of uh, fentanyl or drugs coming into the country. Um, some people will say, well, you know, the the real problem is the addicts. So the solution has to be those addicts need to stop taking drugs or we need to work with them to stop taking drugs. But that sort of misunderstands what an addict is. If they could stop doing what they're doing, they'd probably do it. It's, you know, the drug becomes part of the person and they just turn into a different creature that makes different decisions. So you can't you can't use your magical thinking say, okay, imagine this was the person before they took drugs. They could certainly make the decision not to take drugs, but they're not that person. That's magical thinking. Once the person and the drug become one, you know, I'm talking about an addict in particular, and I think any addict would back me up on this, um, you're a different creature. You're, you're a different human, and you make different decisions, and you can't change that. So in that case, if you could, if you could reduce the supply – or maybe you could uh, move that person to a place where it's harder to get, that solution is not directly uh, associated with the person whose responsibility it is, who is the addict, but it might be the best solution. Likewise, you probably lock your door wherever you live. I'm guessing you probably lock your door at night, but the problem is, is with the burglar. You know, If you wanted to solve it at the root, you'd say, hey, burglar, don't burgle my house. Why don't you make a different choice? But that's not going to work. So there are lots of situations where you can identify whose fault it is. It's the burglar. It's the addict. But that's not where you're going to find a solution. The solution might be something in the atmosphere, something about limiting access to something, something about friction, something about a, a different government process. So an engineer is going to say, I won't necessarily say that the thing I'm looking at is also the solution because the solution could be to engineer around it. Yeah, you go on to say that engineers are trained to identify which combination of variables matter in a given situation. And the thing that engineers know and the general public often ignores is that it's common for more than one variable to be important at the same time. And that seems to be 
such a problem, such a mental prison, as you would say, because and particularly on like you hear people arguing on television or something or in a conversation, it's a lot of the problems are much more complicated. Yeah, really, every problem is you know, complicated because mm-hmm. we live in a complicated world. And the simple ones have already been solved. So it's the complexity which guarantees that you know it's interesting to talk about and you haven't solved it yet. But um, the one of the little things that I was doing for, I don't know, a year or so before I wrote the book is various trolls will come after me on Twitter and they'll criticize me for some opinion or another. And whenever they come after me with the one variable thing, well, Scott, you're wrong because this one variable, for example, the people who are skeptics on climate change will often come in and say, no, it's all the sun warming. You know, the warming is just sun, sunspots, sun activity. It's all that. And I will say to them, is it your opinion that the climate scientists of the world, all of them, the people who are studying what makes the planet warm, forgot to consider the sun? Is that your opinion? And then I'll look at their profile to see what kind of a career they have. And you end up with artists and musicians and, and people who have not studied the how to compare things um, kind of kind of uh, field. So people who are economists, people who are engineers, sometimes lawyers, probably even emergency room doctors, I would think, because they have to do a lot of triage and figuring out what's more important and weighing a lot of variables very quickly. But it, there is a skill to it. And if you have not been exposed to those fields, you wouldn't know you didn't have it. So you would say, well, I'll just go with my one variable. That seems pretty convincing to me. I understand the world. It's all about money or it's all about ego. Uh, So whatever you hear the one variable opinion, I, I discount it immediately. And then I look at their profile to figure out what kind of career they're in. And then I go, ah, okay, that's the problem. (laughs) Okay. Well, you mentioned comparing things, and that was one of the most important things in the book. And you say, I want to quote from uh, page 125, how to compare things. You say, as I mentioned, I was an economics major in college. Later, I went on to get an MBA. Those college courses taught me, among other things, how to compare alternatives in a rational way. If you have not learned that skill and you mistakenly believe it is common sense You are at a tremendous disadvantage in all dimensions of life, from your career to your opinions on politics. Talk talk more about that uh, inability of people to compare things. Yeah, I like to use uh, examples that are sort of in the news so everybody can relate to them. Imagine you go out in the street and you say, hey, person one is the president, doesn't matter who it is, could be Trump or anybody, is the president doing a good job or a bad job? The first person says, good job. Go to the next person, what do you think? It says, bad job. You go to the third person, you say, is the president doing a good job or a bad job? And that person says, compared to what? You found an engineer or you found an economist. But at the very least, you found somebody who knows how to compare things. Because the only way you would know if your sitting president is doing a good or a bad job is to know what some other president in the exact same time, in the exact same position, was doing and how it turned out. If you could compare two presidents working the same job at the same time, well, you might have something that would be a valid comparison. But nobody really knows if another president would have made bad choices or good choices and how that would work out. So whenever I see somebody who has a strong opinion without anything that is the comparison, you know, the control, if you will, mm-hmm. that's automatically an illusion that they have a good opinion. And you can almost always guess what kind of background they have from that. Yeah. Well, let me just jump to another part because there's so many uh, in the book, and I, I want to uh, incite the listeners to to go and get this book. And in the United States, uh, this episode will publish before the Thanksgiving holiday when you have to get together with uh, your family, and it's usually with people. You know, there's usually a somebody in there that usually gets everyone else provoked or starts trouble or whatever. I think if people read this book before Thanksgiving, they might not be so bothered. <laughs> by that cranky father-in-law or uncle who's got all these concepts and ideas. It would just, it just seems like you wouldn't have to drink as much uh, at the Thanksgiving table. That, that, was, that was my takeaway. I, I think it's even better than that because there are techniques in the book to drive your relatives crazy without being impolite. <laughs> right. You know, the, 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 one I mentioned earl- the one I mentioned earlier, the laundry list one. If you can get your crazy uncle to tell you the strongest point on his laundry list of why he believes what he believes, and you debunk it, that's a good time. 
you, you, and your your uncle will follow you around for the rest of the day on Thanksgiving. Say, what about the second and third thing on my list? And you and you say, I thought we agreed. I thought we agreed that I would only debunk the good one. Right now, (laughs) it's time to watch the Cowboys or the Lions play. Right. Right. The other thing I want to ask you about, and it's really applicable to salespeople. It was just the first thing that came into my mind, where you talk about the importance of systems versus goals, and you say that you know in your uh, your personal life, business life, and so forth, it makes sense to favor systems over goals whenever that's possible. Why, why do you feel so strongly about that? Explain what you mean. So I wrote more about this in my book, I Had to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. And that was the thing that people took away from that. And so I, I emphasized that again in this book. And it was the idea that if you have a goal, there are a few problems with that. Number one, until you achieve your goal, you're in a state of unfulfilled semi-failure. And then you, you achieve your goal and you're done. You set another goal, and then you go back into your failure mode. So it's not exactly motivational to feel that you're always short of your goal, a mm-hmm. perpetual state. So that's bad. The other thing is that we live in a very fast-moving, complicated world. And if you set your goal tomorrow, say, I want to be in this situation one year from now. Well, a year from now, so much could be different, and that's typical in our current uh, current society, there could be so much different that that thing you set as your top goal might not be your top goal by then because there might be another job opening. You might have discovered a startup you could work with. There might be a hundred things. Now, if you have a system and there are lots of different systems, you, you're doing something every day that makes you more valuable, but in a general way. So for example, if you go to college and let's say you're majoring in whatever, it doesn't matter. Every day that you go to college and do your work, is a success because you're becoming more valuable, smarter, you're making connections and all that. And when you're done, you don't know exactly where that college degree will lead you, or it could be trade school or something, but you know it makes your odds way better. So mm-hmm. a system has the quali- a system has the quality of improving your odds by doing something on a regular basis. Uh, without knowing exactly where it goes. So you could have systems for fitness, for diet, for career, for learning. Uh, One of the best systems is to layer skills together. And one of the reasons that my book, Loser Think, um, is valuable, I think, to the reader is that it quickly allows them to add a bunch of skills to their stack without having to major in it in college. You can kind of quickly get there. Right. And you said testing small and tracking results is a system. So I was encouraged by that. And it also reminds me of the notion of your behavior improves your attitude. You, it can actually uh, make you feel better. Yeah, a lot of people have what I would call a backwards idea of how their body works. Most mm-hmm. of us think, well, I have thoughts and I have feelings. And then those thoughts and feelings guide what I do with my body. So it's like brain first. Now, your brain is always first because, you know, it has to initiate action. But there's sort of a small executive program in your head that can get you to do some stuff that is mostly about your body. So, for example, if I tell myself to go to the gym, I'm almost always in a better mood. If I feel a little cranky and I tell myself to eat something healthy, that almost always helps too. So if you imagine that your mood is somehow magically created by some weird combination of your dreams and thoughts and your your priorities, you're missing the biggest and most available tool for fixing your attitude and fixing the way you think about the world. Move your body. So say to yourself, what can I do to my body that will have an influence on my mind, my ambition, my energy? And there's almost always something that just jumps right out. Take a walk. Take a nap, spend time with people you like, have some laughs. You know, you usually know what it is, but I recommend people say, you know, if you're in a bad state of mind, the first question you should ask is, what should I do differently with my body? You recommend that people change what they do to change how they think. So, and, and, al- and also who they are, because philosophically, you're not your thoughts. You know, we, that's how we think. We think, okay, my, my internal conversation I'm having in my head, that's who I am because I always have the same sort of conversation in my head. But that's not who you are to other people. 
to other people, you're just what you do, including what you say. But uh, this was a, uh, it was a Dr. Laura uh, idea I stole from her, which is that the most productive way to think of yourself is that who you are is what you do. So if you would like to think of yourself as a generous person, you better go do some generous stuff because you can't be generous just in your head. If you think you're an active person, you better start doing some stuff, et cetera. So with the audience in mind here, persuasion is something that's very important in marketing, sales, and, and, and for anyone, really. And you mentioned that the most important thing you learned as a hypnotist is that people are not fundamentally rational <laughs> when it comes to many of life's biggest questions. In fact, you say we're, we're not so much a rational species as a species that has the illusion of being rational and that if you don't understand that basic quality of human nature, you're going to be in the mental prison forever. What's the, what's the problem you see there and, and what is it that's keeping people from understanding that? Do they think that people are more <laughs> linear and rational than they are? Yeah, the the typical view of humans by other humans is that we're rational most of the time, but sure, every once in a while, there's some topic we get worked up on, and maybe then 10% of the time, we could be a little irrational, but we know it when it's happening, and it, it's not who we are. The hypnotist reverses that, and in fact, you could not really be a good hypnotist if you, if you didn't learn to think of the world uh, in the opposite way. Which is that, and by the way, science completely backs everything I'm going to say. This is 100% backing with all science. That the brain makes decisions and then it figures out why. So hypnotists know that and it's important in, in what they're doing because uh, there's a lot of irrationality in the process. But the average person, um, if you ask yourself, the last person you talked to who was really frustrated about something, usually other people. What was it that frustrated them about the other people? Well, sometimes it's because they lied or cheated or something. But most of the time we're frustrated with other people because we don't think they acted rationally and they didn't respond when we told them what rational behavior looks like. <laughs> now, if you're, if you're a hypnotist, you say, oh, normal. I'm dealing with irrational people. We're doing irrational things. And if I want to change them, uh, facts are not necessarily going to be the mechanism to do it. So if there's any emotion involved, I'm going to have to use emotion. I'm going to have to use influence, persuasion, technique. Um, so facts and reason won't get you there if somebody's worked up about something. Right. Well, related to persuasion, let's talk briefly about analogies. What are good and bad uses of analogies, and, and why do you find them particularly useless for persuasion and predicting? Well, the, people, the way you should use an analogy, the good ways, are to describe a new concept or to, to be funny. Analogies are good for jokes. But let's say you wanted to describe what a zebra was to someone who had never seen one. It'd be easy to say, all right, you know what a horse looks like? Now imagine it's got black and white stripes. So the analogy just gets you right there. So they could be really handy for a new concept. Mm -hmm. What they're terrible for and what people use them for more than anything is they'll say, you know, I see that your cat has some markings like a Hitler mustache under his little snout, and you might want to have that cat put to sleep because I've seen this pattern before, and it only leads to invading Poland. Uh -huh. So if you're using an analogy to predict, you have left the field of reason because analogies do not predict. They just remind you of other things. So certainly in politics, you see this literally every day. Somebody says, ah, that, uh, that president is using that strongman language. We've seen this before. This is leading to the next thing you know. Uh, you know there's there's going to be World War II. Mm -hmm. So that kind, of, that kind of thinking is just absurd. Uh, if something reminds you of something else, that's it. That's the whole story. Hey, that reminded me of something else. It does not mean that causation is similar. Yes. So there are people probably listening to this who are driving to work. And many of them, when they get to work, they're going to hear a word that you absolutely hate. Problematic. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why do you hate the word problematic? And what should people be uh, concerned about when they hear that used? First, let me confess uh, that 
I use the word, and it, I cringe every time I do, because it's a lazy word. Uh, if you can give some examples of why something might be a problem, well, you probably have a reasonable opinion. So if you could say, you know, this would cause people to do X, Y, or Z, and we don't want that to happen. That's that's a valid sort of opinion. But if if you don't have any uh, any specifics, and you're just saying, well, it's problematic, that might mean that you can't even think of an example where things could go wrong. And if you can't even imagine an example where something should go wrong, that would be a fairer thing to say. Well, you know, might go wrong, but I can't think of it anyway. But when you say it's problematic, that conveys that you you have some sense of really specific, you know, risky things that could happen. But if you're not going to name them, maybe you don't. So when somebody is trying to shoot down one of your ideas at work and they say, well, it's, it seems problematic, you should say, can you be more specific? I would say, can you walk me through a scenario where it goes wrong? You know, tell me a story. There's a customer. The customer does this. And we do this. Now, how does it go wrong? Can you fill in the blanks? You know, fill out that story for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, just one last question about the book. And it's really, uh, I think, great a career advice for anyone for whatever whatever they're doing. And you it talks about judging others by the mistakes they've made. We we often judge other people by the mistakes they make or the the mistakes we think they've made. But you write that a smarter way of thinking is to judge people by how they respond to their mistakes. Explain what you mean there. Yeah, if you judge people by their mistakes, you end up hating everybody because we all make mistakes. And guess what? I'm going to make more. I'll make some tomorrow. Guarantee it. So judging people by my mistakes is bad enough. But then you add social media to it, and suddenly your mistake is getting judged by thousands. <laughs> you know, people are really piling on. And it's just a bad way to form a society. Now, compare that to what I suggest which is people make mistakes and sometimes you they need to apologize. And if they do it well, I always recommend that they won't accept it. But most importantly, look at what they're going to do about their mistake. Did they, number one, acknowledge it? Number two, did they give an apology that you, you think is credible? You know, it wasn't just a bad acting job. Are they saying what they will do about it in the future to prevent this problem from happening? Now, under those conditions, I say, well, that's pretty good. That's somebody who recognized the problem and fixed it. My best example of this was Steve Jobs when AntennaGate happened. That was one of the early uh, iPhones. If you held it in your hand at just the wrong way, your finger touched an internal – well, it was too close to the antenna of the phone. that was, apparently was around the perimeter of it, and it would stop working. So here's a guy who's invented this futuristic phone that you hold in your hand, except it has one flaw – you can't hold it in your hand. <laughs> it was like the one of the worst problems, most embarrassing problems you could ever have. And Steve Jobs gets, you know, a couple of days go by, I guess he was planning how to address it. And he gets on a call with reporters, and I'm paraphrasing now, but basically he said that, you know, we had a problem. We want to make our customers happy. Here's what we're going to do. So he totally accepted the problem. He said his main priority is to make his customers whole. And then he said, this is what we're going to do. And he offered some, some workarounds for it. Now, that is a perfect response. If you said to me, but Steve Jobs, I really expected you to make a futuristic product nobody's made before and have it no bugs in it. I didn't expect that. But I do expect that once the problem is surfaced, that Steve Jobs says, yes, it's a problem. Yes, I want to fix it. Here's how we're doing it. And then I say, not only do I respect that, but I like you more than if you didn't have a problem. And by the way, there's some science behind that. You've probably heard this before, that um, the best customer you could have is one that complained. If yes. you fixed it. Mm -hmm. If you fixed it. Those, those become your loyal for life customers. It's like, I had a problem, you fixed it. I love this guy. Yeah, there, there was a book on the show by Jay Bear called Hug Your Haters, where he was explaining that maybe only 4% of your customers might even complain. And when they do complain, they're actually giving you a gift of information that a company years ago would have paid a researcher to find out. And it also yeah. brings to mind uh, a client I had years ago where he, when they were, um, it was a big IT firm that later got acquired. And he said that when they would be talking to a prospective customer and they would, the, the issue of references would come up, 
he would say, look, anybody can give you a list of happy customers. I'm going to give you a list of customers where there was a problem and we worked through it. <laughs> oh. Enormously persuasive. That is so good. I'm totally going to use that. Oh, please. Yeah. So the point about the career advice is that like if you're in the agency business or if like I am or if you're uh, you know working for anybody, you said the great advice for anyone is – one, like you said, fully acknowledge the mistake and its impact. Number two, display genuine looking remorse. Number three, explain uh, what you do to, to fix it, to, to make amends. And number four, explain how you plan to avoid similar mistakes. And then on the other side, it reminds me of you know, somebody like some company like United Airlines saying, well, we're sorry people reacted badly to us dragging a, a passenger off the plane and bloodying him up. Oh, 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 man, that was so bad. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a couple years ago. You probably heard about that. So Yeah, I remember that. So, Scott, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I would uh, recommend that if they read the whole book and they were still a little skeptical about it, they should try the pinky moving trick to uh, get in a couch lock. Because once you see how quickly that works, it's going to make you rethink everything else in the book. And you're going to say, huh. This worked really well. Maybe I'll take a second look at that other stuff. Yeah, I think that it is made, it, it helps with my empathy. <laughs> I know that may surprise you, but it's like I understood even better why people think the things they do, and I'm less inclined to be critical of them. And I guess it made me more, it gave me some more humility in terms of just how, how screwed up we can be. Well, wouldn't you say it's a, just better for society if somebody's disagreeing with you? They're using some technique that I've labeled loser think. If you call them stupid or uninformed, you know where that goes. Oh, yeah. But if you, but if you say to yourself, what's your, what's your background? And they say, well, I'm a musician. Uh, don't you feel differently about it now? Because you're like, oh, you have not studied rigorously for years how to compare things, how to do you know, long-term financial projections. You probably never learned about the time value of money, at least in a rigorous fashion. Mm -hmm. So it makes me feel completely different about people when I realize, oh, they don't have the, the background that would allow them to get to the same place. Yeah, they're not bad people. <laughs> I just, it just seems like it – you know the expression, it's an observation, not a criticism? That, that kind of rang through as I was reading it. Like, I understood why people are behaving that way. It's not like they're necessarily morons or evil people, and I don't know. It kind of calmed me down. So thanks, Scott Adams. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad I did. What's, what's one thing, just one thing the listener can do today? to put in action one of the many ideas from the book? Well, I, I hate to use the same example, but certainly do micro steps. Uh, if there's something big you want to do, don't tell yourself it's big. Figure out the smallest, smallest, smallest little thing. Yes. Write down a phone number. Uh, just do that one thing, and then tomorrow do one more simple little thing. So that's the big thing. The, the other sort of macro idea is to uh, have some humility about how good you are at reading minds and figuring out which variables matter or, and even comparing things. Now, some of us are better at it than others, but we should all uh, come away with some more humility. Which, And one of the techniques I like to use is that I have a little recording that plays in my mind when somebody's disagreeing with me, and it goes like this. Maybe this time I'm wrong. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, I, and I just play that in loop. I could be, I could be wrong. Maybe yes. this time it's me. And uh, th I think that does help. So a little bit of humility goes a long way. That's so true. And uh, there was another book on the show called Making Websites Win, and it was by these two conversion rate optimization experts from the UK. And one of the funny things I remember from their book, as well as from the interview, is they were very honest about saying, look, you know, we're usually wrong. <laughs> That's why we want to test everything. We kind of right. gave up trying to figure out or guess what's going to happen. We just put it out there, A-B test it, go from there. <laughs> you know, I, I, I used to work in a group that did uh, human interface testing. And what a wake-up call that is to watch people uh, try to use an interface that you're positive is so simple that nobody could get it wrong. I remember the... I remember sitting there. They, you know, they have literally the, you know, is it one way or two way mirror, whatever that's called. Uh -huh. So, so I'm looking in. You know, the customer can't see, and and you, and I want, and there was instructions what to do, and the person sits in front of the computer, 
and it says, uh, you know, put your, your mouse, mouse over to here. And the person picked up the mouse off the desk and put it on the screen because okay, yeah. the direction said, put your mouse here. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching that and saying, everything I assumed about what people can figure out, I got to change that now. <laughs> and <laughs> and you, would, you, you would watch person after person come in with what you thought were just dead simple directions and they couldn't figure it out. Now, the first few times you see it, you, you get cocky and you say, well, I must be smarter than all of these people who are coming in here. And then the person with a PhD in user interface design comes over and taps you on the shoulder and says, uh, no, if we bring in five people to test this interface and one of them can't figure out how to use it, we messed up. The interface is wrong. Mm. So it takes you a long time to realize that the problem's on your end if, you, if people can't figure it out. Yeah. So that's, that's a good lesson to take away. Yeah. What books have inspired your work and career? Probably nothing as much as the book Influence by Robert Cialdini. I'm sure you yes. may have spoken about that. Maybe you've even talked to him. I, I got to interview um, him about his book, Persuasion. His, the book you mentioned, uh, Influence, came out in 1984. Yeah, and it was sort of the, the monster of that field and continues to be. I still recommend it. And then Persuasion that you mentioned would be the other one. Those two completely and fundamentally change how you see the world, and it never it never changes back. That was my experience. Uh, there are some books you read, and they affect you while you're reading them. Maybe it lasts a week, but then they just sort of disappear into the mist. But if you read Influence, and then especially Persuasion, you're a different person when you're done. Yes, so that's yes. The problem. And you know what? Influence uh, is the best-selling business book on Amazon ever. I was not aware really? of that. Yes, Dr. Cialdini told me that. It was the era of Amazon, of course. So, he, you know, it was the right book at the right time. But it's it, that book has been mentioned in so many other books of the hundreds of books that have been on this show that it's, it's really amazing. I also want to mention, not to put words in your mouth, but on page 204, you talk about a couple other books. You mentioned Influence by Dr. Robert Cialdini, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, and then uh, another one by this guy named Scott Adams called Win Bigly. And you say, if you want to understand the world as it is, instead of the myth of human rationality, any one of these books will set you free. I recommend reading them in this order, the order that I, that I just read there. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Yeah, I've got on my uh, shelf, the one I'm about halfway through is called American Nations, and it gives you information about sort of the 13 colonies founding of America days that you thought you already knew. But when the way it's framed in terms of the different societies and different ethnicities and different influences is completely eye-opening and totally relevant to today. It changes your opinion about today by looking at you know a deeper look at the, the colonies. So that's a really good book. And then I'm getting ready to read Stealth War by Robert Spaulding uh, about uh, China uh, being a bad actor, basically. Oh, terrific. Well, the, both of those are right up my alley. I, I'm going to have to check that out. I was not, a, I heard of Stealth War, but I didn't know about the uh, American nations. That really sounds uh, very interesting. Um, so at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to um, your site, uh, your social media, uh, Twitter, and your LinkedIn profile so listeners can reach out and connect with you and thank you for being on the show, or, or they can reach out to you on Twitter. But just so the listener knows, the authors, even Big deals like Scott Adams always get a kick out of hearing from people that that heard them on the on the podcast. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Loser Think, How Untrained Brains Are Ruining America. The author is Scott Adams. Scott, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you for having me. I I enjoyed every bit of it. 
And that closes the book on episode 252 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Oribi. To start turning your website data into actionable insights, get your free 10-day trial, no credit card required, by visiting oribi.io slash marketingbook. That's O-R-I-B-I dot I-O slash marketingbook. And don't forget, make sure to use that link to get 30% off your first three months. You can also find that link at marketingbookpodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome John Jantz back to the Marketing Book Podcast for the fourth time to talk about his new book, The Self-Reliant Entrepreneur, 366 Daily Meditations to Feed Your Soul and Grow Your Business. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison. Uh, did you ever hear about uh, the story of uh, George Bush Sr. and his thank you notes? Didn't he write a lot of them? I think I may have heard about that when his funeral was happening. Yeah, I think I, I thought about it at the time. It seemed like his superpower because really in order to sort of move through the ranks the way he did, he had a lot of advantages. You know, he was rich and stuff, but mostly his connections, his networking. And so he would sit down and for some long period, he would write these personal thank you notes to people. And I always thought, my God, he's, if you did a little bit of that every day, you would have a, a freaking army of people who love you. And yeah. I thought, that's like, that's like the best, that's just one of the most powerful systems I'd ever heard because I think that system made him president, frankly.